Our complete library of episodes is available for free at spotlightonpodcast.com slash episodes. There you'll find all of our conversations stretching back to our launch in February of 2020. Check it out. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on composer, improviser, and master percussionist Adam Rudolph. A global performer and global citizen, Adam has been called a pioneer in world music by the New York Times. With dozens of recordings to his credit, he joined us upon the release of Timeless from his Hue Vibrational Percussion Group on his own Meta Records. Adam has worked with artists including Don Cherry, John Hassel, Sam Rivers, Pharaoh Sanders, and many, many others. But he had a particularly extensive collaboration with Youssef Latif over many years, releases, and ensemble configurations. Adam and I connected immediately, and we had a terrific conversation, which I am ever so pleased to share with you here. Enjoy. There's a lot I wanted to try to get to with you in our time together, such a rich and fascinating career you've had and that you have. But something that stood out for me is where you're from and Chicago. And I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about sort of the role in Chicago in in your development as a musician, as a thinker, what's just sort of the influence of of that place and specifically Hyde Park, such of just a rich cultural place. Yeah. Hyde Park at that time was really one of those epicenters of culture and political awareness. This is, I grew up there through the sixties and was there through the early seventies. Everything starts in your home, of course. And my father who had been at the university of Chicago was a huge music fan. And so he took me to hear every Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, Stan Getz to the Chicago Symphony a lot. So the home and he had recordings in the house. And then the immediate environment was really incredible. The first big influences in terms of my going out and experiencing music for myself was discovering the great blues musicians who performed nearby. Sunday afternoons, you could go to the the checkerboard and Peppers and hear the musicians, even if you were underage. So at 13 and 14, we would take the bus and go hear Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and uh, Hound Dog Taylor. And this was just the environment. I mean, I didn't think about it. I mean, I knew it was special, but like sort of historically special. I guess looking back on it now, when you mentioned about thinking, I think what I gleaned from it now and what impacted me about experiencing those musicians live often was that it showed me how musical technique and your approach can completely serve the emotional and spiritual feeling of what you're trying to project. In other words, there was nothing extraneous or it was all their technique. The idea of virtuosity completely served the um, uh, mystical feeling that was being projected through the music. 
which was certainly there with those artists. Yeah. Not long after I became exposed to the musicians in the AACM, and they were my neighbors. Henry Threadgill lived down the street, and Steve McCall lived a couple doors down. I knew Joseph Jarman just around the neighborhood before I even knew he was a musician. At the same time, one of my high school music teachers was very close with Leroy Jenkins, and she would actually have some of the AAC musicians come and do workshops and performances at our high school, the University of Chicago Laboratory School, where Ray Anderson and George Lewis also went to school. They were older than my, myself. So there was a series at Idenoise Hall at the university where I got to hear the first concerts of Air Trio, the Art Ensemble of Chicago, Marion Brown and Steve McCall doing duets. So this was just the music of the environment. It was the atmosphere. It was the feeling of the time. I love the music. In addition to discovering records by the great, you know, listening to records and things like that. The other thing that was really impactful in the neighborhood was, although I had done my classical piano studies as a kid, when I was 14, I think, I used to go out to a place called The Point, the promontory, which was a grassy area out sticking out, out into Lake Michigan. And a lot of drummers would be out there. A lot of the drummers who later on or during that time were playing with a group like the Pharaohs and a lot of the pre-Earth, Wind & Fire groups, Durf Recklaw, Shango Andefunik, George Favors, Malachi's brother. I don't know. I was this kid, and eventually they're playing, and they let you, if you wait your turn, you get to play. I can't explain it, but I was called to it, playing hand drums, and I was gifted at it. It came to me, and I can't really explain it, but it was there. And then I was fortunate to find a teacher who had just moved from New York who was teaching at Drums Unlimited, and he was very experienced in Afro-Cuban and Haitian drumming. So I got a good technical groundation right from the beginning. So all of these things are going on at the same time. But yeah, my dad's, even before I could drive, he's driving me to uh, the Nation of Islam had a restaurant where they would bring in groups like Max Roach. He would take me there because I couldn't, or go here, Stan Getz or Mongo Santa Maria. I just fell in love with it all and felt called to it. So, yeah, that was step one, I guess. Yeah. As I was preparing for our time together and putting my notes together and thinking about some of the themes I wanted to talk about with you, I hit on something that I wanted to say out loud in advance of some of my questions, which is I kept arriving at these lines of inquiry that were about contrasts. And I'll, and I'll give you some examples in a moment. So this isn't a, a theoretical discussion for you. But what I was realizing was my questions were very binary. Compare this to that. Contrast this with that. And I can't stand that. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, language works that way, but reality is not that, right? Yeah. And and that comment that you just made made me, you know, so of course, we're continually confronted with sort of, or if we're paying attention, we're continually confronted with sort of the limits of that binary thinking, right? Or to say it in a more positive way, the opportunities around and the excitement around non-binary thinking, when you can break that that mold, how much more interesting the, the world around you becomes. Yes. That seemed like yet another path, though, into discussion with you, because those themes seem apparent in your work, in 
other things I've heard you talk about. Who are some of the non-musical thinkers that that shape the way you view not only your work and your approach to work, but if you don't mind me saying it this way, sort of your cosmology? One of the things that I gleaned from my experiencing the AACM musicians and the Art Ensemble, which was my most influential group, was that anything you can imagine to do in music, you can do mm. if you can find the way to do it. They, they showed that to me. Also, that music was the music of the environment. It seemed imperative to me to find my own voice, not to replicate that music, but to find my own voice and understand and develop my own process and aesthetics. That's what they showed me, those musicians, I think. And also the other thing about that environment, I think a lot of musicians who have been very influenced by, for example, the AACM, don't have a grasp of like how that music was embedded in the cultural environment of that time and that place. Yeah. When I lived in Africa, one of the things I discovered was that music comes from something greater than music and is about something greater than music. African philosophy is a lived philosophy. It's not something abstract. It's lived and it, and to understand it, you go through the portal of understanding what we call aesthetic manifestations. Actually, in a way, I think I'm in the process of answering your question through the back door, which is some of the things which impacted me most powerfully in terms of my thinking or my awareness or consciousness about creativity were experiential. It wasn't just that I read this philosopher or that philosopher, but for example, the experiences of living in Ghana when I was 20 and attending trance meetings, the Brekete trance meetings on a regular basis really shifted my thinking and expanded my thinking about what music could be, what it, what its functionality could be, started me thinking about the connection between that and consciousness. When you move past binary thinking, as you said, what are you dealing with at that point? And I've been studying all along, of course, great writers like Hazrat and I at Khan and watching Ni, one of the great Taoist practitioners. And of course, they try and put into words, but again, the words are binary because that's how language works. I've been influenced by everything. I mean, in terms of reading and study, I'm always studying. Now I've been just recently, just for example, I'm reading the work of collected works of Gary Snyder, mm -hmm. and I find him to be a fantastic, interesting person. One of the most influential people for me in the last few years is the writer and scholar Robert Ferris Thompson, who has written his seminal book, African Art in Motion, and also Flash of the Spirit. These are fantastic books. Lama Govinda has been a big influence on my thinking. John Dewey.
something that that struck me also in your path has been the role of formal education and your collegiate education and and musical study and art study, as well as the importance of this sort of oral tradition, practical study, the musics you talk about, whether it's Ghana or some of the other, forgive me for saying, sort of the world musics or the non-Western musics that you've immersed yourself in. And you mentioned going to Ghana when you were 20. I think it's hard for people sitting here in 2023 to understand what the world of travel was like back then, what information was like. And a few things you've said so far allude to this idea that you were very comfortable walking through cultures and cultural contexts. I can't ignore the fact that you were welcomed in, or or if not welcomed in, you were present, you were there, like the, you weren't kept out. And I'm curious mm. about that aspect of your experience. Like what makes a 20 year old student seeker, curious, open hearted person think to go to Ghana? What gets them received? When I arrived in Ghana, actually, I, I'm thinking, I think I was 22. I think I had my 22nd birthday when I was just maybe 21. Yeah. But anyway, 1977. And I think about it now. I had a one-way ticket. I figured out how to get there. And the way the communication was, it took me three weeks to make an appointment, get to a phone to be able to call my parents and tell them that I had arrived. It was really different then, the connections and the communication. I went, I didn't know anybody. The way I ended up in Ghana, okay, so just to contextualize it, of course, I was attracted to hand drums and started learning about hand drums. And then at the same time, there was Rose's Discount Records in downtown Chicago that they had every record released by label and catalog number. It was pretty cool. So you could go to Okora Records or Folkways Records and flip through there and find something. And so I would just like, that's amazing. Cover the music of the Sanufo from Ivory Coast, you know, and just like that. And I had heard some dance groups, drumming groups from Ivory Coast at the same time, I was studying tabla. I started studying tabla, North Indian drumming. And I had studied djembe with a, a great drummer, Alaji Kamara, in New York in 1975. So it's pretty clear that the root is Africa. I met Juma Santos, a great conga drummer, hand drummer, who you might know as Jim Riley playing on Bitches Brew and worked with Miles and um, when I heard him, I played in a group that was opening for Ahmad Jamal, and wow. we talked, and he was so encouraging to me about, he thought I played, he, he was like supportive of my playing, and he said, you should go and, and go to Ghana. So, well, where to go? Ketcha had started the Institute of African Studies, which where he brought musicians from different parts of West Africa. The idea was in a place where you could actually study both on a scholarly level and an empirical level. But just to step back for a second, I just want to say I'm primarily an autodidact. I did engage in institutions at a time, at different times, but basically I've been finding my own way and figuring out how to compose string quartets on my own. And it's much more fun uh, and interesting that way. So I was like, okay, let me go. So I would write these letters to Ghana. It would take weeks to get there. And then I don't think I, I can't remember if I heard back or not. But anyway, so the Institute of African Studies is there. It's an English speaking country. I know there's a lot of musicians there. So it's at least some kind of structure to show up with. So that's where I went. 
when I got there, I landed in the middle of the night and went to the, took a cab to the campus and the campus was closed. The school was on strike. So nobody was around. Um, <laughs> so that was the beginning of a year long adventure. What a beautiful adventure because I think I lived there for a year. I never once actually had to pay to stay anywhere. People just saw hospitality is really central to the, I think, the cultural feeling there at that time, my experience. It's just, that's how it is. Anyway, I ended up without getting into the whole details of the story, but I found housing and I ended up studying with a great drummer who introduced me and got me involved in this Brekete religion that uses trance ceremonies. Went lived in the villages and etc. Had a lot of very mind expanding. It changed me forever on a lot of different levels. One of the things that occurred to me when I was there that's really had an impact was two things. One is that, as I mentioned before, that the philosophy there. I saw how it was a lived philosophy. This connection of expression of individual and collective consciousness through what we call arts manifested and that powerful connection for that and the context in which music, you know, we grew up, we hear, we go to a club, we go to a concert, people clap at the end. There I was going to trance ceremonies, naming ceremonies, funerals, all these kind of different sort of events that encompassed Music, music wasn't even a, isn't even thought of as a separate entity. So it just right. changed my whole thinking about it that way. That was one thing. The other thing was that I realized soon after I was there, there was no matter how much, even today, no matter how much you listen to recordings from a place like Africa or even just West Africa or even just Ghana, you'll never. It's the tip of the iceberg. There is so much music, so diverse, so deep very attracted to the Ave, the language group that was there, the, their music. So I started, I said, let me study that. But I said, I'm not going to be, that's not my goal in life to be like a, a master Ave drummer, especially in reference to this idea of living the philosophy and expressing your life experience through music. But there's still this value of learning it, but realizing there was so many different rhythms, so many different traditions. That was when it occurred to me to begin to look at the underlying elements of the music. So I've spoken about this before. I found a confirmation when I was reading the uh, theoretical physicist Michio Kaku's book, where he says that as you move, they, they postulate there's 11 dimensions in theoretical physics. And as you move into the higher dimensions, the laws of physics become simpler and simpler. Hmm. So that occurred to me that at that time, what are the underlying elements that are universal here that are the commonalities of how these things are structured on the one hand on a let's say a vibrational level which is an acoustic level and on the other of course on this humanistic level and that has served me to this day because as you move into the higher elements of music of what's called music it becomes simpler and simpler in other words you begin with the idea of what we call style and something that attracts us. So you were talking about something that really attracted you to, mu you to music or me as a young person. But as an artist, you want to learn everything you, I wanted to learn everything I could about every kind of music there is, but it's not just a conglomeration of a bigger 
pile of things, just like looking at these universal qualities at the same time. For example, you mentioned earlier about duality and language. So as you move into the higher dimensions, actually music manifests itself, what we call music, in a, a fundamental duality. And that duality is what I call color and motion. Okay, so color, it, it also implies harmony, melody, what we call pitched material. Yep. Motion, we experience music temporally, right? That's how we are as human beings. So motion is what in musical terms will be called rhythm. So we're saying rhythm and color, right? Motion and color. But these two things, which I can explain or not, depending if you want to go into it, but these two things actually are a unison. They're a duality. That are, they're expressed as a duality, but the unison is vibration. That's the unison, is vibration. That's the ultimate unison. As you were saying that, something that landed for me, and I'm, I'm going to give you my sort of my freshman year dorm room understanding of this, but again, from physics, it sounds like you're describing the way, say, a particle and a wave moves. So you have the color and the rhythm that at a lower level, we perceive them as different things. As the dimensions simplify, they're sort of different manifestations of the same thing. They are, and it has to do with the mathematics of it, because I think I can explain this. So, again, this duality, it has to do with what's called yin and yang, okay? Yin is a female energy, which is even. It, it has the number two and four associated with it. Yang is the male energy, which is odd, numbered three. What was fascinating to me was when I traveled in Ghana at the same trip in 1977, I went up into Burkina Faso, and which was called Upper Volta at that time, and then went all the way up into Mali and traveled as far as up to Mopti. And then from there, I went out to visit the Dogon people, the cliff dwellers, who have a very deep, interesting cosmology. Yeah. And one of the things they say is that they call the male energy nya, which is the same as yang energy. It's three. It's odd. And they call the female energy is called tolo, which is even. So yin energy or shakti energy, if you're thinking from a Hindu perspective, and the yang energy, the male energy, odd, they call, again, they call nya, or we could call it yang energy in the Taoist philosophy, or Shiva energy in Hindu. It's male energy. And they have a proverb. And the translation of the proverb is, every rhythm is a marriage and an interplay between the male and female energy, this odd and even. So three and two, looking at it from a mathematical. And I found that this is something that is universally true in many, many different kinds of ways that I've explored. And by the way, I just published this book last year called Sonic Elements, where I go pretty deeply into this. So how do they connect? Okay, so three against two, three and two happening in the same time period is the fundamental polyrhythm from which all rhythms are derived. So three against two, if I even just do it now. Okay. If my hands were doing that fast enough, 
you would begin to hear the vibration of the interval of a fifth. And the fifth is the dimensionality that it moves into multidimensionality of all harmonic material. In Taoism, they say from one comes two, and from two comes three, and from three comes all the numbers or all the 10,000 things, right? When you have a pitch, a pure tone, the first overtone is the octave, but you're still in a linear, you, you still are confined to that reality. But the second overtone is the fifth, and the fifth is what opens you up. That's that three against two vibrating, something three against two opens you up to the fifth of the fifth and all the harmonic materials moving all the way into sound mass and everything. So that opens up the door to all of that. So that's where they, that's where this connection is of this sound and motion, or I would say color and motion. you're approaching a new project, we'll use Timeless as an example, since that was the impetus for us to get together. You're creating some of the initial concept work, if you will. I don't want to, I don't want to get too bogged down in your process, though I am interested in it. But when you're doing the initial work to start your project and you start to think about the collaborators you would like to have come in and contribute to one of your projects, are these overtly discussed ideas? Do you find that the community of musicians that you're drawn to are conscious of these concepts? You know, every musician, some musicians like, like metaphor and the philosophical energy, energetic conversations more than others. You know, Yusuf Latif, who was a longtime associate and great mentor, he was like that for sure. Don Cherry, another great mentor, was, but it was more experiential with him in some mm -hmm. ways. Everybody's different. But you mentioned about process, and without getting into the specifics about process, I would like to just touch on the fact that process is extremely important. I read an interview once with Richard Serra, the sculptor, and he said that when you can generate new processes, creative processes, your art becomes prototypical. With every record I make or concert, I want to do something I've never done before. That's what keeps me interested and alive and inspired. So that means always 
thinking about process, experimenting with process. Of course, we're building on what we know all the time. The musicians I've been attracted to with elders and then now younger musicians have been those who are evolutionists, those who are studious. And yes, and I and the great philosophical thinkers. I had many beautiful conversations. I mean, Yusuf and I spoke a couple times a week for decades about all kinds of things. I've also had incredible conversations with Muhal, Richard Abrams, who anybody who worked with him or knows him know that he's also a great thinker. Don Cherry, one of my first mentors was Charles Moore from Detroit. So my second school, I would say Chicago, South Side of Chicago was one school for me, school in the sense of an environment. And the other was Detroit. I started performing and working with musicians from Detroit when I was, I think, 17. And Charles Moore. And Charles was also a great thinker and philosopher. I find that so interesting. But in terms of the musicians, everybody's different. Some musicians just are more interested in those things than others. What can I yeah. say? But the idea of Miles Davis is the great prototype because he understood so much about chemistry in terms of working with musicians to get the right musicians and combine them and then create an environment for them to be as free and inspired as possible. That's the goal for that, right? Just to take a quick sort of side detour, you mentioned Detroit. When did you first cross paths with Laswell? Does the relationship go back decades? That comes back to when I lived in Ghana, in the compound I was living in, based out of a Kora player from Gambia, had been brought by Nketiah to Ghana to teach at the Institute named Fode Musasuso. And Fode Musasuso and I became friends. We came back to the United States. I think he and I together started the first band or among the first bands of really combining especially this traditional African music of Mandingo, Kora music with rhythm and blues and so-called jazz, right? We started the Mandingo Griot Society, and we invited uh, Don Cherry, which is how I met Don, to play on the first record. I invited Don. I found him. So Fode Musa is the one who met Bill, and Bill produced our third record of the Mandingo Griot Society. So I knew Bill, but I didn't really connect up with him in a more significant way until I moved back to the East Coast after living in California for years. And his studio is like 10 minutes from my house. And I started working with his engineer, James Della Tacoma, who now we've, I think James and I have worked on at least, I don't know, 30 records together. So I help Bill. I go and I play on his, whatever he needs me. I go and I play on his records and I get use of the studio and we've become more closer the last 10 years, I would say, since I moved here. He's such an interesting figure, obviously, in the, in the world of all these musics that we're talking about. And is a, just because of the nature of just the prolific nature of his work, he's, he's often the entry point for so many people into all these musics, into all these themes. So that's the nature of my curiosity there. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. Other than the podcast itself, the best way to stay in touch with our various goings-on is to be on our mailing list. To sign up, go to SpotlightOnPodcast.com and click on Newsletter. Thanks. And now, back to Spotlight On. As it relates to the new record, 
What does it mean for you that you use the term bongi music? So actually, bungi music. Ah, okay. Bungi. Actually, so the first Who Vibrational record we made was a duet of Hamid and I, Hamid Drake and I. The first two were actually duet records. It's sort of our way of describing it as, I call it organic groove music. So bungi is kind of like, you know, I want to say this in the politically correct contemporary term, but it's like, what is the quote that George Clinton had? Free your ass and your mind will follow? or is it <laughs> Free your mind and your ass will follow. <laughs> right. So bungi is music that's hopefully going to make you shake your bungi, your butt, man or woman, anybody, whatever now, you know, but that's it. <laughs> so bungi music, I do a lot of music that's also more abstract through composed string quartets and my go organic orchestra and rhythm is in everything is inherent in everything just as form is inherent in everything but bungi music was just to have an arena where i was going to do music that was more what people call groove music that you could shake your bungi to it <laughs> as you're talking about it i see you sheepishly smile as you're describing it i'll tell our listeners that but i'm curious also though is it essentially a framing device for you so you know, in the absence of genre limitations, it's just a way to frame how you're approaching a project? Yeah, that's actually a really good way to think about it. I mean, Who Vibrational, that project, it's exactly that's the way you put it. It's I sort of a framing it as like this music is going to be grooving, which is like, you know, ostinatos. I mean, when I'm thinking about grooving, it doesn't have anything to do with style where now I'm going to try and make a a pop record or have a backbeat, but it references more actually the original Bungi music creators who would be what I call the Aka, Baka, Babanzeli, the so-called pygmies, the people in the Yaturi forest. Music that cycles around and around with a very particular kind of combination of motion and color and this collective lifting of the moment to move into a place of ecstasy. That's what we talk about when we're talking about groove. That's the idea. So, yeah, it's exactly who vibrational boogie music is a framing of really, I'm going to focus on that now and not about solos or about theme and development. It's not about that. It's not about even storytelling. It's about creating this environment that orbits around, orbits inside of orbits and that lifts and really try and make it where this feeling of, of lift goes on. It's a really fun record in that it's full of little sort of sonic rewards. And because it is Bungi music, you can put it on with a certain volume and enjoy it, you know, and move around and do that thing to it. But it also rewards careful listening. These are some of my initial feelings after spending several days with it in that, again, some of the collaborators you've brought in or some of the percussion accents, they rear their heads for a few moments and then go back into the the mix. Like... Is this a studio work? Are you taking all of these elements and spending a lot of time on the assemblage and the sort of mixing? And is it a production project or is this happening in some real time? Simple answer is yes. <laughs> I Completely <love> <laughs> a, a production project. I have my parameters of how I do it. I keep it all. But I look at every, like I said, every record, every music has its own process. And yeah, I released records like the last records of my trio with Taishan Sori 
And Dave Lieben, or actually now there's a new record that just came out of a duet with Taishan Suri. It's this is what we played that day being documented. Or there's let's go in the studio and we play and this is what we did. Like one of the great things about someone like Bill Laswell or going all these great producers is it's completely valid to me and fascinating to me to go in and spend hours and days and weeks and months or whatever going into that process of I work in Pro Tools here in my studio. And so I did it all. The assemblage was all done here from organic materials that was performed in different kinds of contexts. I really appreciate what you said about that. Yeah, you can listen to it in backgroundy kind of way, but that it does reward the listener who decides to whatever, put on some headphones or do a careful listening. There is every little detail. There's nothing left to chance in this record. Mm -hmm. Every little detail, everything is placed down to the most minute thing in the color, the processing, the electronic processing, the panning, every, everything is done in super duper detail. And of course, when we were confined, that was a great way to keep my hands on the creative process. I enjoy it. I feel like it's a comp it's a valid compositional process the studio is a is an instrument and a tool and it's incredible how in the modern age although i guess not you know i, I guess we could talk about phil specter even the studio has always been there there's always been an awareness among certain creatives that the studio is not just a box that you walk into to play in that it's one I, i'm i'm all for that i'm interested in it some musicians aren't i think if if bach was alive today or whatever certainly Composers like Stockhausen and Varese were interested in it. Of course, why wouldn't you use the tools that are available and the technologies that are available to you now? And making a record, so there's the idea of a record being a document of something that happened, right? But then, yeah, as you mentioned, Phil Spector and Jimi Hendrix with like records like Electric Ladyland, Sgt. Pepper, or even before that, what George Martin was doing with Paul McCartney and all of them. Why not? I mean, why not make a record be the record? And of course, now we have some concerts coming up with Who Vibrational in the next months, but not at all interested in trying to reproduce anything that happened on the record, right? The record is its own thing, and the concerts are going to be their own thing. What is the live presentation? Will you have any of the themes from the record? Will any of these songs be performed? Will, will you use them as springboards or is it just you show up and you start topping out a polyrhythm and all of a sudden you're off to the races? Like what can one expect when they go to one of these shows? Well, the lag time between making a record and when it comes out, you're on to something else. So I'm thinking about other things now. There's a great story about when Coltrane put out A Love Supreme and it won all these awards and it was beloved by the time he was invited to play at the Downbeat Jazz Festival in Chicago at Soldier Field, and everybody's there all excited, waiting to hear A Love Supreme. And he showed up with, I think it might have been two drummers, and I think Pharaoh Sanders and Archie Shep, and they were doing more like Ascension. He was on to something else. It was a year later. And some people will hang with you and others won't. For me, now what I'm interested in 
And who vibrational is, I'm interested in working on this concept. I call it sort of sonic mandala, rhythm mandala. I use the musicians who are playing now in the live concert. Some of them are the same as the record, but some of them are different. So we're using materials that I've developed with them in my Go Organic Orchestra and in Who Vibrational that are what I call signal rhythms and ostinatos of circularity, which are these orbiting patterns that move inside of each other. So what I'm interested in is another kind of virtuosity, what we're going to be doing in these concerts. So virtuosity depends upon what it is you're trying to do. As I said earlier, I mean, the way Muddy Waters plays guitar, that virtuosity might be different than, say, John McLaughlin, right? So that depends. We're developing a kind of virtuosity which is based upon the idea of a mandala where rather than adding, there's it's not about solos, and rather than adding ideas in, it's about how you can maintain the aesthetic and the structural aspect of these sonic mandalas that are going around and around by playing less and leaving more space. And what happens is we've done some concerts like this. It's pretty amazing as you leave more space and focus into the essential, like a mandala, you know, the ideas of it is to go to the center of it, right? You go into the center of it. You move into the center of this, you discover all kinds of things. And again, it, it's not unprecedented, although we're doing it in a way that's very contemporary, but it does relate to this most ancient of musical, of creative cultures, the people of the Aturi Forest, the Aka, the Baka. There's a lot of freedom, but you're moving into these small cells of things, smaller things orbiting inside of bigger things. So it's something I explain to the musicians how to do it. Now, these are all musicians who are very familiar with my ostinatos of circularity. They've been performing with me in the organic orchestra for years and in Who Vibrational and in my moving pictures group. So they know. And the signal rhythms that I use again and again in different kinds of ways. It's just tuning them in and talking with them of like how to approach what they do. It relates to what the very first thing you were saying earlier about non-dual. It's about non-trying. So a lot of times when we play so-called jazz, it's about let's make it happen and running around the instrument and playing ideas and lifting and getting more excitement and building towards something. And this is like the opposite of that. This is like non-trying. Just sit with your part the way you're interlocked with everybody else, relax, sit there, don't try to make anything happen, and organically to it, that music is going to lift. The first time I remember I saw Thomas Mapfumo, the great Zimbabwe musician, when he had his group of Ambira, Kalimba, thumb piano players, and they were just playing these incredible, beautiful, simple grooves, and they just laid with it. They weren't pushing they just laid with it. And by itself, so what we're trying to do with these sonic mandalas, by itself, the music begins to shift, transform, and lift. It's it's sort of mystical. We did a concert back in August, and we set up at the place called Public Records. We actually set up, there were seven of us. We set up in a circle in the middle of the room. It was a room. The audience was all around us. And it was like really beautiful experience. It was different than a concert in that way. 
And again, relating to this experience in Ghana of like wanting to break out of this, okay, we're on stage, you're down there, transactional idea. In your experiences and both your lived experience, but as you've educated yourself more and more over the years on different musics and different cultures and the roles that they play in these different cultures, how do you reconcile or think about the notion of vibration, transformation, mysticism, magic, and entertainment? Where do those things, where do they serve each other and where are they a disservice to each other? I think I can answer the question in in an indirect way, I hope. In our culture, in our society today, music, like many things, has become a commodity in that it's transactional, except nobody pays for it anymore. But, you know, you you consume it, you download it, you consume it, you buy a, a ticket to go to a concert. But let's not forget that music, what we call music, is a human activity that existed prior to any social constructs and cultural constructs, maybe even before language, even language itself. I'm talking about 50,000, 500,000 years ago. And it's a mystery, of course, as to what music is about. But it's clearly interwoven with human consciousness, the nature of what human consciousness might be itself, and that human consciousness seems to have an imperative to know itself. So in other words, we're communicating ideas now through language, but of course, as we know, when we experience music, something's being communicated that is beyond words, right? Or, or different than words, let's say. And what is that? And that has to do something which is intrinsic to the nature, I think, of what it means to be human in terms of consciousness itself, which is a mystery. To look at it from another way, if you look at the material realm as like horizontal, music and artists in general have been pushed way to the periphery in terms of how they're valued in our society. However, if you look at the vertical realm, so the vertical realm, which is that which goes into the cosmos, or maybe if you think down into the unconscious individually and collective unconscious, that vertical realm what we call music or art, creative expression is actually right in the center of that. Like Joseph Campbell said, artists, if they understand the relationship of what they do to, for example, shamanism is to go outward or inward and bring back that which we discover. I think about my Personal mentors like Yusuf Latif and Don Cherry or people I had relationships with like Ornette Coleman and Muhal or great artists who I didn't even know personally like Thelonious Monk. These people are actually the mystics of our time and our place. If people would wake up and see it from that perspective. Yes, Everybody's trying to function in some kind of entertainment complex because this is the time and place we live in. So Thelonious Monk is playing in a nightclub, but his music is transcendent of all of that and is actually telling us something about who we are in our humanity that is ever as much as profound as any music you would find anywhere, anytime, even though it's not overtly so-called spiritual. I mean, Coltrane 
And Yusuf, those musicians, they sort of made overt in their titles and their conversations that which is inherent in the music in any case. Yeah. Coltrane was, you could not have been more explicit. (laughs) Yeah. But it was there already. It was there already. As you can tell, I, I talk a lot. <laughs> I mean, I like to, I like to, I like to speak about what what we love. You know, that's yeah. what it is, and help people think about things in different kinds of ways. So that's why I wrote the Sonic Elements book. Besides the musical information contained in it, the cosmograms and matrices, there's 21 philosophical essays in there too. The whole idea is about cultivating imagination, listening. And sharing, to me, those are the important things of what we're really trying to do and to keep pushing the boundaries, keep doing research, keep exploring. And my philosophy in terms of entertainment has always been to shoot the arrow and paint the bullseye around it. <laughs> you know, you, you have your creative imp- impulses that takes you in a direction and then we try and figure out how to share it the best way we can. Your Your comment about imagination that that seems to me from these conversations i have with artists that seems to be really the role of process and it's less about any specific set of rules or patterns or or prompts or what whatever it is that that any artist incorporates into their process it's more about having a tool to unlock and to maybe change your it, it it changes your reality your process sets up a new reality and when you're in a new reality different creative energies are un, unleashed at least that's that's what i've been able to gather from these conversations that's a beautiful way of putting it and more succinctly maybe than i was even saying it which i appreciate that and yes indeed you have these great artists who they showed us how to do that this is part of our young person artist evolution right you're influenced by initially by what these great artists do, like a, a Ornette Coleman or a Yusuf Latif, Don Cherry, Muhal, but you move to how they did it. It's not what they did. It's not a style. Don Cherry used to say, style is the death of creativity. You move from what they did to how they did it, and the how has to do with process. And so being around these musicians and understanding, I mean, Yusuf was incredible how he could endlessly come up with different ideas of how to organize intervals and ways of putting his music together and keeping it fresh, keeping it interesting. 
And I would add to that moving from the what to the how is even maybe you could say moving to the why, you know, and the why leads us back into the mysticism of it. And definitely when you speak to musicians like that, like Ornette or Muhal or Yusuf, who I knew the best of them all and was really close to, even watching this new documentary about Wayne Shorter, he was obviously, he was clearly a philosophical thinker and that why, the humanity of it, what is it that uh, makes us human? And creative imagination is something special, something particular about human consciousness. We don't know what the consciousness is of birds or a tree or a rock, but we know that there's something about human consciousness that is related to this idea that has the idea of creative imagination related to it, which manifests through intuition, studiousness, inspiration. Where does that come from? You're always grateful when it arrives. How do you cultivate yourself to become open to intuition? People are gifted. Obviously, some are more gifted, but it's also something you can cultivate. That has to do with a way of living. That's what I was saying about these great artists. They actually show us, you don't have to be a musician to realize that they're actually showing us that when you can be fully yourself as a creative being, then the fullness of your of living as a human being becomes manifest. Duke Ellington said, it's better to be a number one yourself than a number two somebody else. You know, <laughs> So you look at someone like Roland Kirk. Sometimes, I don't know if you ever thought what would have happened or what would happen if like musicians like Roland Kirk and Mingus and Thelonious Monk and the list can go on. But these really Sun Ra, these Don Cherry, Yusuf Latif, who were really sort of so completely themselves as people, if their music had been played widely, widely and on the radio and had performed, been able to perform widely, how I wonder how that would have would change the culture and the values of the culture that we live in now. Because it takes you out of that regimented thinking, right? Of the being in the consumerist box, of being in the worker bee box, all of those things. And that's what they're there for. So the impact is not just like, okay, wow, that's groovy music. And I noticed that people like yourself and people who are really engaged in so-called creative music, man, they're different kind of people. They're thinking differently. Yeah. It's what I try to get at in some of these conversations, which is, were you like this before the music? Did the music make you like this? Or was it some fundamental part of your nature that led you towards the music? I think about that for myself. I spend probably too much time thinking back on my own musical and philosophical evolutions. And if I'm honest about it, or if I'm clear-eyed about it, it was always there, right? There was always some notion to be interested, to be curious, to want to keep going down other rabbit holes and doorways and corridors of music. And, and it didn't necessarily have to lead to high art music or this supremely creative, non-traditional music. I know plenty of people that love rock and pop music, but have the same mindset. They're just voracious and curious, and they want to follow all the strands and read the notes and see who played with whom and just revel in it. It's exciting. Music's fun. <laughs> so, so, so are you saying then, do you think for yourself it's 
it feeds on itself, right? I mean, you have an inclination, but is it cultivated in your environment and your experience? Did you have a mentor in particular who really, or people who really influenced you that way? Interesting. It's a very good question. I, th- I think t- there's a couple questions there. One is, I think some people without realizing it are prone to magical thinking. And I think that that's maybe the first principle. And, and there's a lot to unpack with that. But I think if I remember to my earliest memories, I would say magical thinking has always been there. Interesting. It was first channeled into music. Okay. I did not have mentors until later in life. I grew up for the first 10 years of my life as an only child. My mother was very into music, but she didn't teach me about music per se. There was just music was a presence. I always had my own interests at a very young age and they were indulged. So I was given records for presents or there was just always music available. Right. And I would say even my first mentors were not people I knew. Like I think about Uh the music artists I like who were meant they were guideposts for me. Yeah. That's what I was saying before. Yeah. And I think actually Laswell was one of those for me. By following his work forward and backwards, at, because I came into him probably a little over 30 years ago, so he already had a body of work, he opened me to a, a lot of worlds, which probably led to this conversation. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. No, that's beautiful. I mean, mentors, like you said, I mean, uh, what is it? It's nature and nurture. You know, are some people more inclined to be receptive to music or inclined to, you call it magical thinking, open to intuitive thinking. It's hard to explain, but it does seem at some point there's usually somebody or some environment that really seems to nourish that seed. Whatever it was and whatever it is, I'm very grateful for it because it's led to such a rich experience of of the universe. You know, I couldn't imagine experiencing or trying to make sense of this universe without it. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) It's just a matter of you get older, it's a just a matter of a sense of what it means to be alive. This is why I never understand musicians are like, or people, audience or musicians, like, I like this music and I don't like that music. There's a pie and there's only so much you're allowed to like. I never understood that. More is more. Man, I remember my daughter when she was a teenager, she turned me on to this group called the Blood Brothers, you know, which is like this sort of thrash. Man, they, they had something going on. I've never been a jazz snob or anything like that. Man, if it's got the vibe, but I think there is a personal process of cultivating an openness and a depth of experience so that you can hear all music is not the same either, right? So what is it that you're listening for and what is it you're resonating to? Yeah, to hear the humanity in all of it. I remember when I first heard Um Kalsum, the great Egyptian singer, I didn't know what, I still don't really know what she was singing, but you can hear the soulfulness in it for sure. Yeah. How do you cultivate that in yourself? Yeah.
when you were talking earlier about the simplistic laws of physics at the higher dimensions, the thought that popped into my head was, I would imagine that at the highest level, it's probably love. And however that gets manifested or measured or expressed at that highest dimension, like these other constructs really do start to break down, right? And that was how I was hearing what you were articulating was that the simplification, it's a shedding of complexity, but it's a breaking down of structure and artifice and all these things we've, especially in the West, that we've built on top of it. It's moving to essence. It's moving to an essence. Yeah. And that essence, yeah, I mean, in a scientific or physical manifestation of energy, we call it vibration, right? But love, I think you're, that's a beautiful way of you're putting it, is love is there because it is a vibrational energy that is the most mysterious and most profound energy that there is. And to cultivate that in ourselves and to understand it's an essence, but it also has its own colorations, right? I mean, you obviously had a partner who you made your child with and you had your, your parents, you know, and then your partner and then a child that love and then loving a tree and loving music or loving a particular music. I mean, all these different things, these different manifestations or colorations of love is really fantastic. And of course, I think the mystics path, what we would hope to move towards is universal love or universal consciousness. And it's funny because I think that process is not an adding in, but it's a letting go. You were saying that, this idea, twice essence, letting go. We're back to square one, what you were saying, dualism, right? I like this experience. I don't like that experience. I like this person. I don't like that. I like green. I don't like blue. These are my people. Those aren't my people. And of course, we live in the world of sensual and intellectual discernment. But as you let go of all those things and realize the radiance of gratitude for breath, you don't need to belong to any kind of club or religion to be grateful and realize that love, in fact, you let go of all those things that is at the energetic center of it all. I'm saying this, of course, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm like speculating on it. We're all like caught up in our own trips. But I, I will say this, I met Yusuf in 1988. He's the age I am now, 68, when I met him. And we did a concert. The first time we met was in preparation. I was living in Don Cherry's loft in Long Island City. And we met to rehearse for a concert we were doing that summer with the group Eternal Wind and uh, Cecil McBee and Yusuf. He had invited us to do a concert. He was a really radiant, very peaceful, gentle person, as everybody who knew him attested to. But it's really interesting. I knew him, and we worked together subsequently for 25 years. Looking back on it now, I can see how he became more and more radiant and let go of a lot of attachments and judgments as time passed. And that, and I, and it's really interesting to see somebody who was already a very spiritually inclined person, but become more and more that way as time passed. And it really, now that I look back on it, I actually see that. So that gives me hope 
you know, for myself and for all of us, you know, of we are who we are and we all have our character and personality. It's an interesting thought, too, by the way, that these musicians who become more in tune, more developed into the uniqueness of their own sound and approach, that their music becomes more universal, which I thought is also an interesting thing about the evolution but you look at John Coltrane as an amazing example, and as he sounded more and more like himself and went deeper into his mystical journey, his spiritual journey, that his music became more and more prototypical mm. and particular, but then it became more universal at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I think on, on a mundane level, that that to me is initial manifestations would be through the incorporating of other musics. Like that's like the first step to universalism is the genre expansion, but it's more like the black hole consuming all the genres. Like ultimately he's taking in and taking in, but he's not putting out Indian classical music. He's not putting out any kind of traditional African style of music, but it's all just being reflected back in the, the light that's coming out of his music. That, that is, yeah, I think there's a truism to what you're saying there for sure. Well, I think, you know, he had an attitude and Yusuf, and one of the things I gleaned from those musicians is you want to learn everything you can about every kind of music that one lifetime isn't enough, but you learn you and you study and you're open to it. I look at it more than reflecting of like, almost like eating it, you eat it. It becomes part of your, you And you have to be deep enough into it and studious enough to glean something about some essential qualities humanistically and, and musically, but you eat it and it becomes just part of what you do. With this timeless record we're talking about, it's not like I'm like, oh, I'm going to do, this is going to be Indian sounding part and this is going to be African sound. It's not like that. It's five decades of being immersed in these things. It, it comes out that way. You eat it. It's in your, it becomes your DNA, becomes your cellular structure. And that's always been the tradition. When I hear a Yusuf Latif, how is it that he sounds 100% it's Yusuf Latif? I hear him, I recognize him in one note, but I'm also, I recognize Ben Webster in there and Lester Young in there and Coleman Hawkins. I'm hearing them in there. And at the same time, it's 100% Yusuf Latif. This is kind of a phenomenon also. And it has to do, I think, with digesting it and integrating things in a deep enough way. And it's not about gathering styles and adding something on, just adding this little coloration on. It's not like that. It's about studiousness. One thing I learned from the musicians from Detroit, starting with Charles Moore, and then later with Yusuf, was they were very studious, that studying everything about music that you can. Yusuf picked up I think he was 60 years old and he picked up and he moved to Nigeria for four years. He studied and taught there. Don Cherry, at the pinnacle of his, he was working with, had been working with Sonny Rollins and recording with Coltrane, Cortis Ornette, and Albert Eiler and had a, his so-called reputation. And he goes to India and he sits and humbles himself to be a beginner to learn Hindustani classical Indian singing and tabla. This kind of attitude of this sort of humility and openness is so important. And again, it's a lack of hubris. It's a, it's a kind of humility that 
serves you as a way of living again. Man, we're learning from each other right now, right? <laughs> yeah. That's why I do these conversations. Uh, arguably, I'm the avatar of the listener trying to bring them information, but really it's ultimately very selfish. <laughs> sure, right. Well, it, it's selfish in, in the way that people talk about, you know, if you practice yoga or qigong or meditation, they call it about self-care. But if you don't have self-care and self-love, you can't love and care for others. People misunderstand that. It's not selfishness. It's about centeredness and knowing who you are as a, what we call a spiritual being. And of course, by spiritual, we're not talking about religion. The great Congo scholar, Bunseki Fukiao, he said, we're born spiritual, we learn religion. Uh, it's just about acknowledging that there's a mystery to where we come from and where we go and acknowledging that we don't know everything. That's all that means. I think on that note, I'm going to say goodbye for now. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's actually perfect timing. It's great anytime. It'd be interesting sometime to to talk about more about these things. And I should send you this book, this Sonic Elements book. Are you a musician yourself, by the way? Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, I create some music, but I don't. I'm not. It's not. Oh. You know, I might, I might just buy the book. To be honest with you, I like to read yeah. books, so I think I might just buy the book. <laughs> yeah, it's. It, it's on the Bandcamp page. I, it's, I was going to say, if you're a musician, the cool thing for you actually might be there's not any Western notation in it at all. Mm. It's all cosmograms and matrices. So you don't need to read. You don't have to be a Western classical kind of guy to get into it because there's a lot of different aspects of this, of these conversations that to me are really fascinating. I'll tell you what, let me order the book and read it and we'll get together and do it again. That, that sounds like a good plan. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. All right, brother. Be well. You too, man. A pleasure. Likewise. Cheers. Thank you so much, Adam Rudolph. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you'd like to support our work, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts or visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. There you'll find our free episode archive, weekly postings on our official blog, and a ton more. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.